verses 2 to 4 is our text this morning. Jahil has already prayed for us, but let me ask the Lord again to, to help our hearing and our preaching of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you tell us in the Word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, it is true that this Word is life. And it's by your Word and hearing your Word that faith and life come to all who believe. Help us to listen to your word as though our lives depended upon it. As though it were the difference between being spiritually full and satisfied and spiritual starvation. It is perhaps, Lord, the case that this week some of us have not had time in your word personally. And so our hearing might be a bit dull and our hearts sluggish. It is the case that some may have been searching your word frantically this week, trying to find an answer and are still left with the question. Speak, O Lord, to them that they might hear and know that you are God. Whatever our circumstance this morning, whatever our struggle, whatever our hope, our lives are built upon your word. So give us hearing ears, believing hearts, and give us faith to apply what you say in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you have something that you are working on. Maybe you don't have to imagine very long before something comes to mind. Maybe you've got a, a little DIY project at home, or maybe you need repairs with the car, or maybe there's a particular question, a particular problem you've been thinking through, and you don't have the answers. And imagine if I came to you and said, you know what? I know who you ought to talk to. Now, maybe because I'm one of your pastors, that, that would be enough of an introduction and you would be interested to go, oh, who is that? But maybe not. Maybe you look at me, you go, man, Pastor T ain't never did no, no stay-at-home project, man. He don't, he don't know what he's talking about or, or whatever. But I said to you, listen, the guy that I want you to talk to, he's a real humble dude, man. Even though he's an expert in the, pro, in the thing that you're thinking about or working on uh, and, and kind of knows everything about it, you, you feel like you're talking to a peer. He's, he's humble and kind and gracious. And, and I went on to say to you, and, and honestly, he'd been working in this field for a long time, and I've never seen him mess up a project. A everything that I've seen him do, all the work that I've seen him do, man, it's solid. He does all things well. And here's the thing. When people come and get counsel from him, they never feel like they got robbed. You know how you go to sort of a, a car mechanic sometimes and you went in just to get an oil change and then you left with like $2,000 worth of bills. You know, he's, he's talking about stuff need to be fixed that you ain't never seen on the car, you know. It's not like that with him. You come, 
serves you, he helps you, he answers you. He's humble, he's kind. And you feel like you were loved in the process. So imagine you had something you were working on or thinking through. And I introduced to you this kind of person, recommended this kind of person to you. Would you want to talk to him? Now, y'all been in churches long enough to know that the preacher's setting you up right now. For we serve a God who knows all things. And we serve a God who does all things well. Ain't never made a mistake. Ain't no prospect of him ever making a mistake. He can do anything but fail. And, and, And we serve a God who is infinite in love. No one who's ever come to him has he ever turned away. And all who are weary and heavy laden, when they do come to him, they find what? Rest. He solves problems. He changes hearts. He is, as the young folks say, everything. And here's the question. Why don't we talk to him more? Why don't we sit with him more? Pray more. Listen more. To the one who loves us, the one who has all the answers, to the one who has all power. Our text, I think, includes in one word a clue as to why oftentimes we are less prayerful than we ought to be. To get the clue, you've got to listen to the sermon. We come back to Colossians, our series, which we called Our Treasures in Christ. And this morning, what I want us to consider is that one of the great treasures, one of the great riches of the Christian life is prayer. Prayer is talking not merely to God, but with God. It's a conversation where he speaks and we listen and we speak and he listens and he acts and we act. It's at the heart of our relationship with him. The ability to talk to the only God who knows all things and does all things well is one of the great, wonderful treasures in the Christian life. And this is why Paul, in Colossians 4, 2-4, exhorts us all to a life of prayer. Look there with me. Colossians 4, verses 2-4. to Continue steadfastly, In prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, these three verses are are companion verses with five and six. So this is one section, but I'm I'm breaking it in half. And the main point of the whole section, we we might put like this, particularly as it relates to our mission in Anacostia to reach our neighbors for Jesus. We might put the main point of these two, there will be two sermons, these two sermons this way. If, If we're going to reach our neighbors for Jesus, if we're going to reach our neighbors for Jesus, We must first talk to God about men before we talk to men 
about God. We must first talk to God about men before we talk to men about God. In other words, we should pray before we evangelize. We should speak to Jesus before we speak of Jesus. And today we want to look at that prayer part of this text, that we should talk with God about men before we talk to men about God. If you're taking notes, I just want to hang our our thoughts on two points. Number one, very simply, we must talk with God. We must talk with God, verse 2. And our second point, very simply, is we must ask for opportunities with men. We must ask for opportunities with men. Verses 3 and 4. So let's look at verse 2 again. This is our, our first point here. Paul writes there to the Colossian church, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, prayer, as I said here, my little simple definition is talking with God, not just to God. It is a a conversation. It's two-way communication. We are, when we pray, to use a fancy word, communing with God. We're having a common union with God. It begins with God speaking to us in the Bible in verses like this. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I wonder if when you read that, you realized God was talking to you. This is the talking book. This is where we hear God's voice. We open the Bible, and so we open his mouth. And God speaks. He calls us to pray. And so our conversation with God really is at his initiation, at his invitation. He beckons us to come and sit with him for a while. And and our prayer lives, our our conversation with God continues with, with our speaking back to him. And he answers, and we reply. When we pray well, we we pray with our Bibles open, don't we? With our minds fixed on the truth of the Bible, hearing God converse with us. But Paul says here in verse 2 that three things ought to be true of our conversations with God. Number one, that we ought to continue steadfastly talking with God. We ought to continue steadfastly in prayer. That means that you may have a translation that says be devoted to prayer. That means we should be devoted in this thing. We should be committed to this thing and, and continuing in this thing. In fact, when you read Coloss- or excuse me, Acts chapter 2 in the early church and its expansion around verse 42, you'll see there that the Bible says that the early Christians devoted themselves to four things. And one of those was to the prayers, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. The Christians who knew Jesus personally and the Christians who live right in the aftermath of his death and resurrection, they devoted themselves to talking with Jesus. They were steadfast in it. In that context, in that day, those were daily prayers when they would gather and seek the Lord. And you know what the end of Acts 2 chapters, uh, the end of Acts chapter 2 says? That the word of God multiplied. That people were being saved and added to the number. I wonder if powerlessness in the Christian church today is traceable to prayerlessness. 
I wonder if we would see more of a demonstration of the power of God in the converting of sinners and the growing of the church if we prayed. It's striking that God could have come at any time. Christ could have come at any time. He could have set his church up at any time. He could have given his church any instruction. He could have come in 2017 and said, here's how you're going to reach the world. Open a Twitter account, start a Facebook page, get you a slick website, get on the radio with your announcements and your messages. You, you know what? Uh, make baptism fun. Build the baptismal like a fire truck. And then all the kids will want to sort of be in the fire truck and to get baptized. He could have said, hey, you need programs for every day of the week, special programs for this and for that. And when you get people sort of scratching their itch with those programs, then you'll be flowing. Then I'll send my power. But God, who could have done that, did not. He came before television, before radio, before the internet. He came before church programs. And he said, pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And the consequence in the early church was a demonstration of the power and the glory of God in human lives. Jesus himself teaches us to pray steadfastly. You may remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, verse 1 begins this way. And he told a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Remember what the parable was? It was of the persistent widow, that widow who was being mistreated by someone, and she went to this judge to plead her case. And it says in the text that the judge was an unrighteous judge and didn't care about the widow at all, but the widow kept coming. And the judge said in the Ebonics version, Lord, have mercy. Let me get this woman out my, out my hair. I'm going to give her what she wants so she will leave me alone. Now, God tells that parable in order that we might be encouraged to continue in prayer. And here's the wonderful thing. God is not like that unrighteous judge. He's not hard toward us and indifferent toward our need. He's calling us to come to him. Don't you know, beloved, God will never tell you that you talk too much? Your friends might. Your mom and daddy might. Your teacher might. But God will never say to you, you talk too much. He says, come man, talk to me all day long, anywhere you want. First Thessalonians 5, 17, three simple words, pray without ceasing. Oh my goodness. That's how our prayer lives ought to be marked because we're talking with a real person who loves us, knows everything, and is able to help us. But number two, Paul says that our prayers should be marked by being watchful. Being watchful. Not only do we continue steadfastly, but we pray with a watchfulness. It basically means with an alertness or an awakeness. It, the word there in the original language is the word from which we get the English name Gregory. So if you know a Gregory, you know someone who's, whose name means watchful or alert, whether or not they are. Now that's what the name means. Remember the Colossian situation. Do you remember the concern that Paul has for this church? In Colossians chapter 2, he talks about these teachers who have come into the church who are looking to take them captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit. 
Around verse 16 of chapter 2, you remember that part of what they've been teaching them is that in order to be a Christian, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you've got to live by all of these human traditions, all of these human rules. And, and you can't touch, you can't taste, you can't, you can't eat, because if you're doing that, then you're not really pleasing God. And Paul has been writing to them to make them alert, to make them aware, to make them uh, recognize that this this anti-gospel teaching has snuck into the church. And so for a very practical reason, I think he's telling them to be watchful in prayer. And the rest of the Bible gives us reasons like that, to be watchful. You might write these texts down and and look at them in in your leisure this afternoon. Matthew chapter 26. Verses 36 to 41, that moving scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has gone there with a couple of his disciples. It is is his hour. It is time for him to be betrayed into hands of sinful men and to be crucified and to suffer in our place. But he goes, notice what he does the night before he's betrayed. He goes to pray. And he says to his disciples, stay here and watch with me while I go over here and pray. You guys know the story. What happens three times he comes back to them and what does he find them doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. And he says, could you not watch for me for one hour? Could you not be alert, awake, watchful in prayer for one hour? And the text says there, Watch and pray unless you are tempted. And one of the reasons we need to be watchful in prayer is so that we can guard against our temptations. I heard our brother John O say something this past week. We were at a conference called The First Five Years where we're trying to encourage pastors in their first five years of ministry. I heard him say something in that conference that struck me and stuck with me. He said, essentially, listen, we not only need to confess our sins, we need to confess our temptations. We need to be alert to the things that tempt us even before we sin and confess those temptations and fight the war against sin at the level of desire, at the level of temptation. I think Jesus is saying a very similar thing in Matthew 26 where he says, could you not watch and pray? He says, stay awake, stay alert, pray so that you are not tempted. There's another reason we need to be watchful and pray. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 34 and 36. There the Lord Jesus is warning of a coming judgment. And he says, now you know that the judgment of God is coming against the world because of the sins and the unrighteousness of the world. And he warns his disciples, you don't want to be caught unprepared when judgment comes. And his answer to that is being watchful. And and I would suggest here, one of the ways to be watchful, as Colossians 4 tells us, is in prayer. Alert that there is a real judgment coming against the world and we want to be found on the side of Christ, not the world. Because if God were to count our sins against us, could we stand? Absolutely not. So watchful prayer is how we keep ourselves. Watchful prayers, how we guard ourselves and and how we guard what the gospel has produced in our lives. We must be watchful in prayer because there's so many dangers, beloved, at hand. That there is the temptations inside of us. There are the false teachers among us. 
And there is the final judgment coming toward us. There's so many pitfalls on every hand. And beloved, if we're humble, we have to acknowledge we don't see them all. We don't see every danger. And not every danger has a sign on it. Warning us to be careful. The sign comes in God's word in verse 2, where God says to us, come talk to me and be watchful. So we want our prayers to be watchful. How, how watchful are you in prayer? Do you pray as if your temptations are real? Do you pray as if it's possible to be seduced by false teachers and false teaching? Do you pray as if God really is coming in judgment against the world? We are to be watchful. And not only that, number three, notice what he says there. We are to continue in prayer steadfastly, being watchful, and notice, with thanksgiving. Paul has really been saying in Colossians chapter 2 that the entire Christian life is to be a life of thanksgiving. Look back in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. There the Apostle Paul writes there, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, since you have become a Christian, received Christ as your Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and notice, abounding in thanksgiving. That the whole course of the Christian life, our walk with Christ, is to be marked by an overflowing thanksgiving. And so when Paul comes to prayer, he comes now to say that that should be true even of prayer, that we ought to be thankful. And why thankful? Well, think of what God has done for us in Christ. What has Paul been telling us in this letter? Not only that Christ died for us to pay the penalty for our sins, but when Christ died, by faith we died with him. And Christ was raised again from the grave for our justification. And just as Christ was raised from the grave through our faith in Jesus, we have been raised with him too. So that, so that Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, around uh, verses 2 and 3, that Christ is our life and that our lives are hidden in Christ. We have been united to him. That's what God has done for us. And this is why God cannot lose us. This is why we will not ultimately fall away. It's because we have been joined spiritually together with Jesus. Our lives are hid in him and his life is lived through us. That's reason to be thankful, beloved. But there's another reason, simply. This is the clue that I mentioned earlier. We are to be thankful in prayer. Why thankful? Well, we're typically only thankful for good things, aren't we? It's because prayer itself, an audience with God, <laughs> is a privilege, is a blessing. Do you realize God was not obligated to hear our prayers? Not in the least. And you realize we weren't so smooth in our prayers or our speech that we could talk our way into heaven? You, you walk up to the gate and meet an angel and be like, yo, man, I'm trying to get in, man. I just want to talk to Jesus, man. He round. 
Angel got that flaming sword. (laughs) That ain't how this works. We can only come to God because of what Jesus has done for us. In dying for our sins on the cross, being raised from the grave for our justification, in obeying God perfectly to supply our righteousness. It's through that that we're able to come to God and and why we should be thankful. We should be glad for the opportunity to talk to God. So prayer, listen, beloved, we we don't ever want to be indifferent about prayer. Have you ever talked with someone who seemed like they didn't want to talk with you? You talking, they looking around, you know. It's not pleasant, is it? If we're indifferent to God in prayer, can our relationship with him be on pleasant terms? Or or have you ever yourself not wanted to talk with someone? You look for ways to get out of it as quickly as possible, don't you? Even before they see you, you'd be like, oh, Lord, there he is. In fact, that's when you pray. You'd be like, oh, Lord, there he is right there. There he is right there. And and you're trying to get away from him, right? It's oh, man, he saw me, he saw me. And so they come and they talk in and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and as soon as you see somebody, you don't even know them. You've never seen them. Hey, man, I ain't seen you in a long time, man. I, I get up, I get up. <laughs> Doesn't make you feel wanted to be treated that way, does it? That kind of conversation is a hassle. Now, if prayer is a hassle to us, Are we living as if God is needed or wanted? Or have you ever had a conversation with someone and it seemed like they were only having a conversation to get around to that part where they ask you for something? All that other stuff is just preamble. It's like, yeah, I got kids. You know, <laughs> all that other stuff is just preamble, right? They just setting you up and, and you can hear it coming. You know, you, they, they making that signal way back down the road, man. And, and then they just work their way up to it. So look, man, I, you know, it's been kind of hard, man. I, you know, I, I, you got like $20 you ain't using. <laughs> but I ain't never had $20 I ain't using. <laughs> I had a definite use for all my money. You know what I'm saying? $20 you ain't using, man. It's not a real conversation, isn't it? It's, it's usury. They're only talking to you because they want to use you for something else. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? I wonder if our prayer lives look like usury of God. Not that God is resistant to give us what we need. He's promised us everything we need. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. He's blessed us, the church, with every spiritual blessing. Listen, God ain't stingy. God ain't unwilling to meet our needs. He tells us to come to him for our needs. And yet, we should be coming to him for who he is. Because of his glory and his beauty, To spend time with him, conversing, to build a relationship with him. I mean, there's there's an opposite way to pray, a way that's opposite to indifference and hassle and usury. If, If people seem to be thankful to talk to you, think about those times. Or when you're thankful to catch up with somebody, doesn't that give you a sense of usefulness and meaningfulness in the relationship? 
You're happy to talk with those folks all day long, and they're, they're happy to see you, and you're happy to see them. In fact, you're thankful to see them even before they start talking, aren't you? So, oh, man, they go, what's the name? I ain't seen him in a long time. And you go, and you, you click up, and you talk, and if we are thankful to know God, then we will seek to talk with God for who he is. And we will seek God for the joy, the happiness of our own soul. If we're not thankful to pray and thankful in prayer, chances are we won't pray. And that's the great difference between prayer is duty and prayer is delight. We get, a, we get a, a steady dose of duty as Christians, don't we? Uh, we, we know that we're supposed to pray. It's, it's like in the Christian job description, you know, and, and, and we get beat up in sermons like this one because we instantly know we feel guilty because we ain't prayed as, we could have been, we could have prayed 20 hours this week and we would still have the sense that we could have prayed some more. And so prayer is just duty. And duty doesn't conjure thanksgiving. It's delight that produces thanksgiving. And so what we want is prayer not merely to be duty, but we want prayer to be delight because of the God who has loved us and the God whom we love. That's who we're talking to. That's who we're speaking with. And it's a privilege, not a right. And it's a wonder that your thoughts and your voice travels to heaven and reaches God. And so we ought to pray with thanksgiving. Now, let me say one other word on this first point. Keep in mind that, that Paul, when he writes this letter, is addressing the entire church in Colossae. So this verse applies to all of us individually. Individually, we should continue steadfastly in prayer, um, being watchful with thanksgiving. But it also has application to us collectively. In other words, this is not simply about private prayer and quiet time and personal devotion. This is also about public prayer together. Some marvelous things happen when God's people gather to pray together. At the very least, when we pray with others, being with others helps us to pray. So some questions about us as a church. If you're new to ARC, you get to listen in on a little family conversation here and you can decide if you like us or not. It's a, a question. ARC, how would you rate our congregational prayer life? On a scale of one to ten, one being non-existent, ten being I wish I could go home sometime and stop praying. You know, what, what, how would you rate it? Do you think we gather often enough to pray together? Do you think our current prayer life reflects deep dependence on God? Would you say we're steadfast, watchful, and thankful in prayer together? Here's a question. If the success of our mission in Anacostia and in the world depended upon our congregational prayer life, how successful do you think we would be? So we're going to start something in September. 
It's called Prayer First Thursdays. Prayer First, First Thursdays. First Thursday of each month, during our Bible study hour, instead of having our regular Bible study, we're just going to call the whole church family to gather for prayer. So we're going to start small. We, we devote time to prayer in our morning services on Sunday. That's because of the scriptures call for us to be steadfast in prayer. But beloved, you know as well as I do that Sunday morning prayer time ain't enough. And so we, we really want to pray as a family. We want to sort of gather together and talk with God, all of his children, seeking our one father, asking him to glorify himself in our lives and to bless us. And so we, we recognize that actually nothing happens unless we pray first. And we want to set aside that first Thursday, each Sunday, to pray together, to seek God together, to be on bended knee and with lifted heart. And so we're going to encourage everyone to come out. I know Thursdays at 7 ain't necessarily convenient for everybody. We got children and bedtime routines and things of that sort. So we're asking you to make that commitment to come 7 o'clock at the House D.C., and let's pray together. Now, if you've been coming to Bible studies on Thursdays and, and you realize that, you know, when we sort of at peak Bible studies a little bit tight, don't worry. It's a two level house. So some of y'all can go to the upper room and the rest of us can stay on the main floor and we'll pray together. Let's let's be eager to go into the courts of heaven as a family and talk with our father. All right. Which brings us to our second point. Not only must we talk with God and do that steadfastly and watchfully and with thanksgiving, but we must ask for opportunities with men. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3. At the same time, pray for us. He says, now while you're praying for yourselves and, and you're seeking God and fellowshipping with God, while you're doing that now, remember us, pray for us. That us there refers to Paul and Timothy and, and the people who are listed there at the end of chapter 4 that, that are with Paul. It's a striking thing. I love this about the Apostle Paul. One of the greatest people in the history of Christianity. He's not beyond his need for prayer. He's not ashamed or too proud to ask for prayer. Asking for prayer is not a sign of weakness, beloved. Asking for prayer is a sign of wisdom. Prayer makes all the difference in the spiritual work. I love what's said about Mr. Spurgeon. You've heard Jahil share this a number of times. Spurgeon once said that the reason why his ministry was long and sustained in his harvest was very simply, my people pray for me. That's the difference in Charles Spurgeon and his successor. Anybody know his successor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why you know Spurgeon and not his successor. The prayers, not even of Spurgeon, but the prayers of his people for his ministry. The pastor who can say, my people pray for me, like Mr. Spurgeon, is a happy man. And notice now, Paul makes two requests here uh, in this section. First of all, he prays that God would open a door for the word or a door for the message. Now, there, I don't know about you, but there are two striking things for me when you realize what's going on in this context. You notice in verse 3 there, he says that he's in prison. 
uh, for preaching this message. Now, it's striking to me, number one, that Paul, locked up in prison, doesn't ask the people to pray for a door for him to be open to leave prison, but a door for the gospel to go forward. You see his spiritual priority. He's like, I can be locked up all day long, but please don't let the word of God be locked up. I can be jailed, but please don't let the gospel be jailed. Pray that the word of God would go forward from this place and that men would hear it. That's an amazing priority, isn't it? And beloved, if Paul can seek prayer for an opportunity to share while in prison, surely we can seek prayer for an opportunity to share while we're at work or in the neighborhood or at the barbershop. Which is the second surprising thing for me about this prayer request. Paul asked for prayer for an opportunity to do the very thing that put him in prison in the first place. He's in jail for preaching the gospel. And he like, pray for me that I get to preach the gospel some more. Now, in my flesh, I'm like, you know, Jesus, I preached your gospel. And then you let me get locked up. Why I'm locked up. I try to be faithful. I can't be faithful in jail. I ain't the only one. (laughs) I ain't the only one. Paul's so in love with the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul like, yo, I'm locked up, but let the gospel be free. And I tell you what, long as I'm in here, I might as well preach it some more. Give me more opportunities to make Jesus known. And here's the thing, beloved, we don't face anything like the persecution that Paul faced. Next to Paul, who was beaten and left for dead. Next to Paul, who was shipwrecked for the gospel. Next to Paul, who was chased out of town after town because he preached the gospel. All our troubles, mere trifles. They're not pleasant, but they're inconveniences, not, not persecution. I don't care how often you hear it in somebody's Christian press. The church in America is not persecuted. The fact that people don't like you don't mean you persecuted. The fact that people say nasty things because you talk about Jesus, you ain't persecuted. They just being sinners and you just being a Christian. They hated Jesus. They will hate us. We can't expect to be treated better than our master, can we? That's what the Lord taught us, right? In the Gospels. So all that's happening to us is what Jesus said would happen to us. So we might as well chin up, carry on, be Christians. Look at Paul in prison, life on the line. And he like, let me preach some more. See, beloved, even if the gospel costs us our lives or calls us to risk our lives, we should pray for opportunity to spread it. Have you reached that point yet in your Christian life? If not, does that mean you think it's better for you to be safe than for sinners to be saved? See, perhaps praying to God for an opportunity, for an open door to the message, will be answered by God with a message that says... Go face real persecution in a place that hates and kills Christians. 
That could be God's reply in response to this request. The question is, if it is, how will we reply? Will we go? Oh, we get all super spiritual. I ain't sure I heard from God yet. Go into all the world, including the hostile world. He says, I send you like sheep among wolves. You know what wolves do to sheep? You know how you can tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf? By what they eat. Wolves eat sheep. Christ sends us like sheep among wolves to make his message known. And just as in the Gospels, when the Lord taught the disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest because the fields were white, in the very next scene, Jesus sends them out two by two to preach the gospel. They were the answer to their own prayer request. Do you pray for opportunities to make the word known? To make Christ known? Because that's what Paul is after. Notice what he says. An opportunity for the message. Then he clarifies to declare the mystery of Christ. When the Bible uses the word mystery, don't think of Sherlock Holmes solving some kind of riddle. By mystery, Paul means something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. Something that people didn't know about God's plan of salvation that God in Christ has now made known. So keep your finger in Colossians 4. Look back at chapter 1, verse 26. Notice where Paul first mentions this in his letter, this word mystery. He's talking about his own ministry of preaching, this stewardship, verse 25, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Then he explains in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to him, to his saints. And what's the mystery, Paul? Verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said, that's what I want to preach. I want to preach to the world the once hidden, now revealed wonder. That God's plan of salvation included not just sending his son into the world, but sending his son into you. Christ came into the world, yes, clothed in our flesh, to die in our place, to suffer the punishment for our sin, and then to be raised three days later for our eternal life. But he didn't stop there. After his resurrection, he ascended to heaven where he sits now alive at the right hand of God the Father. And here's the thing. This is the marvelous thing. Not only does Christ sit in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, but by his spirit, Christ sits in you if you believe in him. This was the mystery. Not just that God wanted to live among his people, but God wanted to live in his people. And he accomplishes that through Jesus, his son. And this is the good news, beloved, because listen, if God just lives near us, we're going to be just like Israel, wandering off, doing our own thing, failing repeatedly, 
looking away from God to false gods. We, we have the same infirmities, the same weaknesses that Israel, God's old covenant people have. Our hearts are, as we sang a moment ago, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But if God is not just among us and in us, we can't wander far. We can't escape his presence. We can't go away from him. He has joined us to himself. He has united us to himself. There is a mutual indwelling. We live in him and he lives in us. Never to be separated. Never to be broken apart. Never to be lost from God again. Our sin had broken the relationship. Our sin had us wandering from God, lost. But Christ came seeking us like, like one sheep who had gotten away from the 99. Jesus came into the world and he sought us personally and he called us by name and he brought us personally to himself in faith and repentance from sin. And he opened our eyes that we might see his glory in the cross where he died for our sins. And he opened our eyes that we might see his glory in the resurrection to know that he had defeated death and that the, that the father had accepted his sacrifice. And he opened our eyes to see our own hearts that there he lived. And he had moved in. That there was a testimony, a voice, an experience that was now in us, giving us life, changing our path, strengthening us with hope. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're a Christian, you have felt that hope. You see that Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, everything I just said Sounds like it's outside of you. You hear me, and perhaps you understand the facts of what I've said. Christ died on the cross and was raised three days later, and forgiveness is offered in him. But those truths haven't yet entered you. This is what we want for you. That Christ would become yours by your repenting of sin and accepting him as Lord as God, as the Savior who rescues you from that judgment that is coming against the world. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. If you're here this morning, this is the offer of God to you, that he will live in you and make you his own, and he will make you a new creature. and he will forgive all of your sins, and he will provide righteousness through Jesus as you trust in Jesus and turn away from sin. And you will live forever with Christ because Christ will live forever in you. That will be your hope of glory. If you want to know more about what that means, talk to the Christian friend who invited you this morning. If you kind of just showed up not knowing what to expect, talk with me or anybody around here who looks like they might be able to answer a question or two. We, this is why we exist. This is why we're in the community, is to make this news known to anybody who will listen and to answer questions for anybody who has them. Remember what I said in the introduction. You got questions about how to live forever, about how to be forgiven of sins, 
we know the one who has all the answers and has never rejected anyone who has come to him. We will go to him with you. We will pray with you and for you. And he will graciously give you life if you trust in him. So the first thing that Paul asked for is for this opportunity. That the word of the a door, that God may open a door for the word of God to spread. But notice there's a second thing that he asked for as we wind down to our conclusion here. He says now in verse 4, pray also for me, for us, that I may make it clear, that I may make the message clear, which is how I ought to speak. I love this about Paul. He's teaching us about preaching and evangelism in this prayer request. See, just saying a bunch of stuff does not satisfy Paul. He does not want to simply sound good or be known as a powerful speaker. He wants his preaching to be clear. I was in the Dominican Republic a couple years back, and I hadn't had any Spanish since like, I was a sophomore in high school. And I'm with my, my dude, man, I was a fellow elder, uh, Luis. He's showing me around his home. We're having this wonderful time. I, I love the DR. Every time I mention it, I feel like I need to get a little sway. You know, it's just, just a romantic, rhythmic culture. And, and so we, we just travel around, meeting folks, man, eating these one big old pots of, like, stuff. It was good. And, and I'm trying to remember my Spanish, right? Because, you know, I, I'm trying to be hospitable, and I don't want people to be switching from English to Spanish. I'm trying to pick up stuff. And, and there was one word I heard a number of times that I knew what it was right off. So people would be talking and, and somebody would say, it's claro. It's claro. Meaning it's clear. See, that's how my Spanish works. You just take an English word and add O, right? <laughs> so, ooh, it's clear, right? It's claro, right? And that's what Paul is saying in this text. He wants his preaching to be claro. He wants it to be clear. He wants it to be plain. He wants it to be understandable. He intentionally preached that way for the sake of his audiences. If you don't believe me, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Jahil in his pastoral prayer made allusion to this, this section of Scripture, but Paul here is talking about the difference between himself and a number of other preachers in Corinth in that day who were, who were well known. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, by which it means worldly wisdom. He said, I wasn't trying to be smooth. I wasn't trying to be impressive with big words. I, I wasn't trying to use the latest philosophy of ancient Greece. He said, I didn't come to you that way. He says, number, verse 2, for I decided, you see, it's intentional. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. See, Paul was scared preaching the gospel sometimes. And, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And here's why, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Plain speaking in preaching produces power from God. And the faith of the people who hear plain speaking preaching rests not on the eloquence of men, but on the power of God. 
And that's what, that's what we want in a Christian church. We, God knows. I, I appreciate encouragement that people sometimes give me about my preaching. I don't want to discourage you from being encouraging. Thank you. But may it never be the case that people leave a gathering of ARC, whether I preach or Jahil or Jeremy or Matt or Daniel or Stephen or any other brother, saying, that was sure a great preacher. We want everyone to leave saying, this is surely a great Jesus. And we want everyone to leave trusting in Jesus, not because our words were smooth or we quoted the best authors. We want people leaving trusting in Jesus because he's the one with power to save. We want your rest, your faith to rest on the power of God, not the eloquence of men. That's Paul's habit, and, and that's our desire. And beloved, this issue of clarity, notice what Paul says going back to Colossians 2 now in verse 4. He says, pray that I, you know, I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. That, that language of ought to speak. When we speak of something being an ought, we, we're saying it's a responsibility, it's a, it's a duty, it's a, it's a morally right thing to do. And that's what Paul means here. Clarity is his duty as a preacher. He feels a moral obligation to make things plain. He, he feels that that's part of his calling. And, and he feels that way because that's what God intends. He intends the meaning of the mystery to be unmistakably clear to everyone. And so, beloved, let me tell you a little bit about our preaching philosophy here. This is why we want a clear gospel explanation in every sermon preached from this pulpit. And this is why I want every preacher in this pulpit to think really hard about the difference between alluding to the gospel and explaining the gospel. I know many faithful preachers, good men, who intend to preach the gospel. But when I listen to their preaching, I do not hear an explanation of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrection, and a call for men to repent of their sins and believe. I hear allusions to the cross. I hear allusions to Jesus, such that if you are churched, you kind of know what's going on. But if you've never been to a church, you really have no idea what he's talking about. Oh, I, I want us as preachers not to be foggy on that, to separate the illusions, which are fine through the course of a sermon, from that point where we come in a sermon and actually explain from the Bible the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us to save us from God's judgment. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is why we address you specifically. Not because we're trying to make you awkward in our services, but because we want this part. If you understand nothing else that happens in our services, we want you to understand this. That God loves you. He made you to communicate with him, to enjoy him, to have a relationship with him. But you, like all of us, have sinned. And you have broken that relationship with God, and God's angry about it. He's righteously angry about it. And he has decided that he will judge us for our sins. 
And so every human being on the planet will have to meet this God one day. And every human being on the planet will meet this God in one of two roles. God will either meet them as their judge, in which case they die in their sins and they suffer his judgment in hell. Or they will meet God as their savior, in which case all of their sins have been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And all that Jesus has done to obey God will be treated as if they had. They will be righteous with God so that they can be in God's presence forever in the fellowship of his love. And the difference between the two is what we call repentance and faith. This is why we keep saying to you, you must turn from your sin, that's repentance, and you must believe in Jesus who saves from God's judgment. That's faith. And you must follow Jesus in faith until you die to go to heaven or until Jesus comes back to wrap all of this up. We want you to be clear on that. And we want you to accept it and rest your souls on that Jesus and that truth. And so we understand if nothing else happens here today, that one thing should be made clear to everyone. It's the thing that saved us. It's the message that will save you. Believe in Jesus. And beloved, we, we don't only want the gospel clear in every sermon, we want to explain the gospel clearly in our personal evangelism. The goal is not to rush through a presentation of the gospel or a gospel track, however useful those little tracks are, right? But no, we want people to ask us questions. We want people to seek clarity, and we want people to even push back so that, so that we can be sure that in that back and forth, they are coming to clearly understand what God has said what God means for them to do, why their lives are in danger if they do not repent, and why they may have great hope, eternal hope, and eternal life if they do repent and believe on Jesus. We want to explain that well. This means that most often our evangelism shouldn't be seen as kind of one and done. You know, I kind of did this presentation, and I managed to get roughly through the, the sort of bullet points of the gospel, and, and now it's up to them. No, our evangelism is best done in the context of relationship where we may have several conversations over a period of time where we actually listen to them and not just talk. We hear their questions and their concerns and their frustrations and their misunderstandings so that we can then gently and lovingly lead them to the Bible and introduce them to the one who knows all things and does all things well. So we want to be patient evangelists. And we want to, in every conversation, explain the message clearly. Another application real quickly. This is why when we celebrate baptisms, as we will do, Lord willing, on Thursday, we have people share their testimonies, their stories of how they became Christians. And we encourage them at some point in sharing their stories to share the message that made them Christians that they believe. We want, even in how we talk about our own lives as Christians, to make clear the message of Jesus Christ. And so even in our baptism testimonies, we do this. The trumpet must make a clear sound. The light must shine bright and strong. But let us not forget the connection of clarity to prayer. 
Paul believes he needs divine power to get the message out with clarity. Clarity is not something he tries in his own wisdom or own power. And beloved, it shouldn't be something that we try in our own wisdom and our own power. Many of us as Christians, we're like, okay, I'm kind of struggling to be an evangelist because I'm fearful that somebody might ask me a question I don't have an answer to. Great! That's called conversation and homework and a future appointment to pick up the conversation. And, and all the pressure comes off of us when we realize that I don't have to have an answer or some secret way to make it clear that comes from me. The clarity comes from God. It comes from his word. It comes from the illumination of his spirit. God must give us the words, must give us the illustrations, must give us the patience, must give us the boldness to speak plainly as we ought. The flesh can't produce divine clarity. The flesh, the sinful nature, can produce force. The flesh can produce bluntness. The flesh can produce impatient, self-righteous Bible thumping. But God must grant us supernatural clarity because God must open the eyes of dead people and give them vision to see. If you've ever told someone the truth about their sin, about God's judgment, about Jesus being the only way to heaven, about the certainty of hell for those who do not trust in Jesus, then you know that being clear feels risky. We live in a world where people actually do not want to be told how to be saved if it involved those things. Now, we can feel intimidated if we're not careful. Even Paul felt fear. In a letter that he wrote about the same time that he wrote the letter of Colossians, he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, he there too asked them to pray for him. And there, the prayer request is a little bit differently. He says, pray, basically, that I would be bold. Not just that I would speak clearly, but I would be bold enough in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak clearly encourages me to know that the great apostle Paul felt fear and needed boldness. We do too. And so we should pray for each other to have both boldness and clarity by the working of God, the Holy Spirit. So before we talk to men about God, we should talk to God about men, about our need for him and our need for him to open a door for us with men. And if we're going to be often talking with God, we must see prayer as a treasure. Is that how you view it? If so, how will you enjoy the treasure of prayer this week? There is a perfect, loving, interested, all-powerful, all-knowing Father who waits to talk with His children. And through those conversations, beloved, things happen in the world. Let us be thankful for the treasure of prayer and let us pray. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would forgive us our prayerlessness. Forgive us for our complacent attitude toward laziness, for our willing submission to idleness. 
for our distracted, our joyful distraction away from you to things that perish. You offer to us an infinite banquet and we feed on the McDonald's of worldly pursuit. You offer to us infinite power and we go about life sometimes as practical atheists living in our own strength. Forgive us, Lord. And Lord, beyond forgiving us, give us hearts of gratitude. Give us hearts of watchfulness. Give us devotion to talking with you, to listening to you, to building a relationship with you so that we might enjoy you now and forever. Oh Lord, don't let us put off infinite enjoyment until heaven. Let us begin our enjoyment now and let us do so in prayer. Help us to pray individually. Help us to pray as a church family. Hear our prayers and open doors for your gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we conclude.